Well, we're going to turn to God's Word together now. So do reach for a Bible if you have one with you. If you have it on your phone, then do open it up. And we're going to be continuing our series uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, we're going to be reading from Matthew uh, chapter 7, uh, verses 13 to 20. So do turn there. Uh, Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes, or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Let me just pray for Phil as he comes and shares God's words with us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it is powerful. Father, thank you for Phil. Thank you for the preparation he's spent on this passage this week. And Father, we pray now as we hear your word explained and taught. Father, I pray you would be at work in our hearts. Open our hearts, open our minds to hear what you have to say to us this morning. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, James. Well, up to this point in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been teaching his disciples, and as you go through it, it's interesting, there's a crowd that is gathering and getting bigger and bigger, but he's teaching his disciples and this growing crowd about what being a faithful disciple looks like. They've heard what's involved, but Jesus goes on to help them think about how they're going to respond. So in effect, this final section of the Sermon on the Mount from verse 13, where we start this morning, to the end of the chapter, addresses that how do we respond, that what do we do with this question, that's all on our minds. And the thing is, without these verses, without the next section, all that Jesus would have left us with is a manifesto of nice moral living, of good spiritual teaching. Because the danger of our sinful heart is that without the verses that we're looking at in the next couple of weeks, we try to work out how to apply the Sermon on the Mount on our own, in our own way. We would seek to be nice like the Pharisees were nice. We'd try not to be judgmental. We'd try to be more prayerful. We'd try to be less lustful. We'd try to be more generous. We would convince ourselves, though, that who we are and what we are is good enough for God. And Jesus knows that. He knows that we take, by nature, everything that Jesus has said in the Sermon on the Mount and add it to what we do in order to say we're good enough before God. And that's why he teaches this passage really clearly, how we are to take the Sermon on the Mount into our lives and into this world and into eternity. That's why these verses are so important in the Bible. 
They teach us how to apply the Sermon on the Mount. And if you've been watching this series on the YouTube channel or have been following over the past few weeks here in person, but you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, then also you need to listen to what Jesus says in these verses. Because they are light in your dark world. They are freedom from the sin that binds you. They are eternal life in your world that only ends in death. So will you listen this morning? Will you, if you like, reach out and say to Jesus, will you take my hand? Because I've heard everything that you've told me about life, the universe, and everything. But I need you to take my hand. Will you do that? this morning if you don't believe in Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. Because he says really two things this morning. And the first is, if you want to do something about the Sermon on the Mount, enter the narrow gate. Enter the narrow gate. Look with me at verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Jesus presents his disciples with two ways to live. One gate is wide and the other is narrow. One is easy and the other is difficult. One will include loads of others. You'll be one of the crowd. You'll fit in. It will be a breeze. Everyone's going there. The other route will put you into an embarrassed minority. One way leads to destruction. The other to eternal life. And Jesus invites his disciples to enter into the narrow gate. In other words, it's not going to be what you want it to be. It's narrow and it's difficult to negotiate, but it leads to eternal life. And it's... Look, here you go. It's the Euros today. England are in the Euro final. I've got to do something related to football. So here it is. This is my best attempt. It's a bit like the turnstiles at Wembley. You might be rich enough or lucky enough, if I can use that word, um, to, to have a ticket there. But, you, you, but, but for the rest of us, just picture the scene going through Wembley Way up the steps um, to the turnstiles to get in. If you've ever been to a football stadium turnstiles, they're they're enormous, they're huge, they're floor to ceiling, they're they're narrow. There's only room for one person. There's no room for anything else. There's no baggage, no pets, no suitcases you can bring along. They're not very accommodating gates. You can't bring anything else with you through that gate. If you want to get into heaven, Wembley, today, you have to go through that narrow turnstile. And you have to accept it's narrow, and you have to enter it on its terms, no other way. And that's the kind of picture that Jesus is using here. Forgive me, I'm not going to go on about football, please forgive me. But the thing about Jesus, the thing about this narrow way, is that the gate is not a metaphor. He's a person. And Jesus says that himself. Let me read to you John, 7, uh, John 10, verse 7 to 9. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who've come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. Why? Because they're thieves and robbers. He's talking about the Pharisees who have tried to do God their own way. And they're not listened to. Why? Because we all see through the Pharisees in the end. We all see through false teaching. And then Jesus says in verse 9, I am the gate. 
Whoever enters through me will be saved. It's a great, absolutely clear declaration, isn't it? I am the great gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. And in John 14, verse 6, he says it another way. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The narrow gate is Jesus. The only way into the kingdom of heaven is Jesus. And we can only enter his kingdom by accepting a very humbling truth about ourselves. And this is it. By nature, we reject God. By nature, we don't want God to rule over us. We want to rule our lives our way. By nature, we want God to accept us on our terms. That's what we call sin. It's an attitude that by nature we tell God what to do and how to do it and why to do it and to do it our way on our terms. That is what it means to be a sinner. And we're all born sinners. There's no one in this world who has ever been born without that attitude. How do I know that? Because we have never taught our children how to be naughty. We've never taught our children how to be selfish. We've never taught our children how to, how to, how to keep all their, all their toys to themselves. We're forever saying, you know, share with your brother, share with your sister. You, you cut and you choose uh, extras for pudding. Why do we have to say that? Why? Because from the very, 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 very moment we were born, we were born with an attitude of saying to God and to others, you've got to do life and the universe our way. That is sin. That's the humbling truth we have to accept if we want to enter the narrow way. And when we realize that attitude of sin for what it is, we realize we've got nothing of ourselves to bring to God. Because everything that we have to bring to God is shaped by that attitude. And that's when we realize we need Jesus. That's when we realize we need him, the gate, to grant us access to eternal life. And just like the turnstiles at Wembley are so narrow, they accommodate nothing else from, apart from one person, so too entering the narrow gate into Jesus' kingdom requires that we come just as we are, rebellious sinners in need of a great saviour. We need Jesus because he died on the cross doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. And what he did on the cross is this, he took the punishment of God that we deserve for our sinful attitude against him. On the cross, Jesus suffered and died. Uh, he suffered God's wrath and died our death so that we might be forgiven. And then he rose again on the third day, proving his work was done and fulfilled and accomplished and promising all who believe in him have eternal life. By default, as I've said, everyone's born on the easy way that leads to destruction. The gate is so wide that you don't actually have to do anything to pass through it. And either you stay on that path, ignoring where it leads, or you can choose to turn and accept Jesus' invitation to follow him on the path that leads to eternal life. And can I just point out that Jesus leaves no third path to tread. His teaching is very clear here. If we think we're able to step back and be okay, if we neither choose the broad path or, or the narrow path, we're choosing 
the broad path. If we believe that Jesus is too narrow and he ought to be a little bit more accommodating, then we're choosing the broad gate. If we believe that Jesus plus something else, like confession of sin or good works or belief in purgatory is the gate, we, tr- we too choose the broad gate because the gate is Jesus and he cannot be changed. He cannot be added to or expected to change to to, to change his mind over something because we find his conditions offensive. By nature, Jesus is offensive. How do we enter him? Well, we enter the narrow gate by confessing to him that we are sinners and we need our savior. We ask Jesus to forgive us for rejecting him for so long. And we ask him to grant us access into his kingdom because he's died for us and risen again. And if you've not done that before or you've been thinking about it for a while and not had the opportunity to do it, then then why not this morning? Why not this morning just say to Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ, I am a great sinner, but you are a great saviour. I reach out my hand, will you take it and take me? Through the narrow gate. Just as there are two gates, though, there are also two paths. In other words, the way in is the way on. I'll say that again. The way in is the way on. If we choose the narrow gate, we choose to follow the narrow path. We, need, we choose to walk with Jesus all our lives. In love with him. Adoring him. Following him. And it's narrow because it's a life that's difficult to follow. But it's right and it's good. It's the best path. And it leads to eternal life. And this path is what Jesus has been talking about right through the Sermon on the Mount. He's been describing what it looks like to walk a life along the narrow path with him. And I love the way it all loops back to the first beatitude. Because entering through the narrow gate with nothing but our need for Jesus and our helpful sinfulness, it describes perfectly what it is to be poor in spirit. And following that path describes the way on, a way characterized by hungering and thirsting after righteousness. uh, Meekness and being peacemakers, knowing the purity of heart that forgiveness brings. And if we're a Christian here this morning, but struggling on that path, take heart. We walked this path and we were on this path because Jesus has saved us and he's going nowhere. And it's because of his work that we're on this path, not because of anything we've done. If the narrow path is difficult to walk on, then, then remember Jesus has taken up his cross for us. And it means our cross is lighter to bear. He loves you. He loves you to death. And today, just as he lives for you, it's our privilege, our pleasure even though it's our burden to live for him. And it's tough, but it's glorious. Following Jesus on this path means we have meaning and purpose and direction. It really does. Meaning we are the children of God. We have his approval. We have his, his, his significance sitting upon us. 
He shapes what we're about, what we mean for our purpose as well. We're here in this world to glorify God, to bring him glory in the way we live our lives, in the way we trust him, in the way we love him. There is what it is to glorify God. That's our purpose. That's our meaning, our significance. We are the children of God. We've been adopted into his family. And our direction and our goal is eternal life. Our direction and our goal is to hear those beautiful, beautiful words, well done, good and faithful servant. Are we living for those words this morning? Are our hearts captivated by the absolute concrete reality of being able to look into Jesus' face at the end of time and hear those words? And see the smile on his face and the excitement in his eyes. My brothers and sisters, that's, the follow, that, that's what it is to follow him on the narrow path. It leads to eternal life. And if you don't believe in Jesus this morning, will you follow him? Will you put your trust in him to take away your sin and to take your hand and lead you on the narrow path that leads to eternal life. That's what Jesus is telling us to do here. But from Matthew 17 onwards, Jesus begins to close the Sermon on the Mount with a series of warnings. And we're going to look at the first of those this morning. And Andy next week is going to take us through the others. But Jesus um, here warns us to watch out for false teachers. He warns us to watch out for false teachers. And that's the second thing um, we're going to look at this morning. So Jesus tells his disciples there are two kinds of teachers of God's word, teachers who live for him and those who live against him. And we need to watch out for those who are against him. So look at Jesus' first of all words in, in, in verse 15, beware of false prophets. Now, growing up in South Africa, uh, one of the treats of, of living near the, town of, uh, the city of Durban uh, was that we'd regularly go to the beach and the thing about Durban beaches, though, was that they, they were a bit nerve-wracking uh, because all over the beaches were, were plastered signs about the danger of swimming in the sea outside the area protected by shark nets. So the signs were there warning us, and the warnings were there to protect us. And actually, you'd be a bit foolish not to listen to them, a bit foolish to swim in the sea outside the area protected by shark nets. And in the same way, Jesus is warning his disciples lovingly and carefully to be wary of false teachers. And in the same way as we'd be foolish to listen to signs about shark nets, we'd be foolish to listen to Jesus' warnings about false teachings. So look at verse 15 with me. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. And Jesus is saying, there are false teachers out there, and, and be careful because they're difficult to spot. Sheep is a biblical picture uh, for, for Christians. And you don't have to be a genius to know that wolves are natural enemies of sheep. And if, if a wolf were to appear amongst a flock of sheep, it would cause pandemonium. The sheep would scatter, wouldn't they? But it would be a different story if a wolf looked like a sheep. It could just sneak into the, into the flock without being noticed and have breakfast at will. Because that's what wolves do. They take advantage and destroy and kill sheep. 
And Jesus uses this picture to show us how dangerous false teachers are. They destroy churches. They lead Christians on the path to destruction and away from God. But the reason why Jesus uses the picture of wolves in sheep's clothing is because he wants us to realize that these false teachers are respected members of the church family, sometimes in positions of authority. They have people's respect. They say helpful, even right things. Even so many way, in so many ways, they look the part. But inwardly, their hearts are far from God. It's difficult to, 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 to hear, isn't it? And Jesus tells us what to do about this danger. He says, watch out. Watch out. How do we do that? Well, Jesus says again in 17 to 16, uh, 16 to 18, by their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. What Jesus has in mind here is the, faithfulness of, uh, the fruitfulness of faithfulness to the gospel. In other words, he's saying, look at what's produced from a Christian teacher's life and their ministry, and eventually you'll see what they stand for. And Jesus repeats this in verse 20. Initially, false teachers are hard to spot, but eventually they will be unmasked. And within these verses, there are two tests that Jesus gives his disciples to discern the false picture. Firstly, to look at how the teacher lives. And secondly, to look at whether they teach the truth of the Bible. So we need to look at how our teachers live. That's, what, where, where, that's where what Jesus says about discernment from last week's passage is really helpful. Is discernment is not judgmentalism. And Jesus encourages his disciples here to be discerning, to work it out. How do we know that? Oh, how, how do we do that? How, do we, how are we discerning? Well, we ask, are the teachers a good example of obeying God's word? That's what Jesus means when he says, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. So it's not right for a preacher to teach love and forgiveness, but to be constantly harsh and angry with their family. It's not right for a church leader to be unloving or uncaring or unapproachable. But it won't be always as clear as this. We have to remember the wolves are wearing sheep's clothing. And we have to ask ourselves, do we see good fruit in the lives of our teachers? Can we, we can humbly ask, actually, whether we see the characteristics of the Beatitudes in the lives of our leaders. So, for example, do you see your church leaders hungering for God's righteousness? Praise God when you do. Do you see the elders here in, in our church mourning over their own sin? Pray that we would do more of that. Do you see us meekly recognizing our own spiritual poverty? Jesus says every true teacher will bear good fruit for all to see. And the truth is, we'll see sin and inconsistency in any Christian's life, including the life of our leaders. Every Christian and every elder is a work in progress. And what Jesus is referring to here is a settled, unrepentant, unchanged attitude to God's word that should set off alarm bells in our heads. It's a sign of bad fruit, says Jesus. It's the sign of a false teacher. So we must be careful that we're not dazzled by things like charm or charisma or clothing or intellect or, or natural authority True Christian character is a life 
shaped by the love of Jesus and obedience to his word. It's what lies underneath the fleece in the heart that matters. But we also have to be careful. These verses don't tell us to be cynical of of our elders or, or Christian leaders that we listen to. They don't tell us to go searching for false teachers. They do tell us that God will judge. He'll judge false teachers for for what they are. If we see consistent settled sin in the lives of our teachers, though, we must be prayerful and bring it to the elders and pray that they would, with humility and care and love, help their brother to see how their lives need to change. So if you like Jesus saying it's God's prerogative to judge, that's right. It's our responsibility to be discerning. But we also need to look at our teacher's message. That's what Jesus says here. Um, Here at Oak Hall Church, we, we try our best to handle God's word carefully. We try our best to take it seriously. But you know, we need everybody's help here to hold us to what the Bible says. You see, Jesus warns his disciples that these teachers are, in fact, false teachers. It's kind of in the, in the name, isn't it? Um, but, so it's not just their lives that are bad, but their teaching that is bad. But as we've already seen, that, that's not always obvious. So how do we discern? Well, firstly, as we grow up in the Christian faith, it's important for us to deepen our understanding of Christian doctrine. To, to get to know the clear and basic truths about God that the Bible teaches. And we're regularly doing uh, Bible uh, uh, Theology 101 classes, and, and um, Dan's just recently gone through um, theology classes through, uh, through history uh, by examining historical uh, doctrinal debates. So we're committed as a church to helping us embed ourselves more and more in the, in the basic doctrines of the Christian faith and the historical doctrines of the Christian faith. And we do that because it means that everybody can join in this wonderful work of discerning whether what is said by our teachers is faithful to the Bible. Because teaching that doesn't stick to the Bible isn't teaching about God. It's teaching about a false God or traditions. It's a false way of following Jesus. So it's important to have our Bibles open and to check what's being taught is from the word of God. It's important for us, if we're, if we're faithfully committed to Oak Hall Church, to bring our Bibles to church and open them up and read for ourselves from the word. It's important not to just believe it because a teacher says it. Whoever they are, whatever their name, we have to ask this question Can I see where that comes from in God's word? Can I see that that is what God's word is saying? But as well as what is said, more commonly as a false teacher, more commonly a false teacher can be discerned by what isn't said. So when a speaker only talks about God's love and God's forgiveness without speaking about sin or God's anger at our sin or the final judgment of hell that we deserve, we need to be on our guard. We need to be on our guard when preachers take verses out of context or even avoid certain parts of the Bible because they must either be too tricky or too unpopular. I had a friend who took up a a, 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 a ministry 
Um, and, and, and he discovered his predecessor had never preached uh, the, any passage from the Old Testament. Because it was too tricky. It was a different God to his predecessor. Perhaps the big litmus test of a faithful Bible teacher today is whether a preacher is willing to humbly preach that sex is only wonderfully God-glorifying in the context of heterosexual marriage. Why is that? Well, you take the Bible and you ask the question, where in the Bible is God's word positive about sex in any other context? Where is the Bible positive about sex outside marriage? And you'll hear, you'll hear many arguments. There's a guy currently in, in the States called uh, Dershowitz um, who, who argues that all the Deuteronomy passages about, uh, about homosexuality were actually put there by a, a, another person. Well, what he's doing there is he's saying, well, I see this Bible, but I think it should be changed. So I'm going to stand in authority over it and change it. A true teacher of God's word says, here is the Bible. It's over me. It's my authority. And there are many parts of it that I don't like. But my God tells me that's how it is. And I submit to his authority. Just like when we went swimming on the beach in South Africa, we had to be aware of where it was safe to swim. So too, as we read the Bible and as we hear teachers, as we invest and immerse ourselves in the church, we have to be sure we're following the narrow path. We have to be sure we're listening to true teachers and that we're holding one another accountable to God's word and all that Jesus has said in these few chapters. And, you know, just like it was foolish, uh, it was quite common, actually, when I was growing up, it was foolish to swim out to the shark nets to see whether you could get a glimpse of a shark caught in them. So, too, it's foolish to flirt with false teachers. It's dangerous to believe that you can filter out the good and, and leave the bad. It's dangerous to believe that you're strong enough to spot the danger quickly and move away to a safe distance. If you really believe you're strong enough to listen to a false teacher and not get pulled into their smooth words and sincere appeals, you're not taking Jesus' warning seriously. But to finish with, and, and I want just, to just ask us all to really, really just draw in around what Jesus says. If you like, climb the mountain, sit at Jesus' feet, and, 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 and just, just drink in the beauty of what he says here. Because his warning is loving. He's not sitting us down and going, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. It's, it's loving. It's the heart of a, a deep, deep, deeply wonderful pastor begging his, his congregation, his children, to listen and to live. It's framed by the Beatitudes and all the teaching through the Sermon on the Mount. And so in the light of all that beauty, all that beauty that Jesus has talked about in this sermon, what he's, what he's saying is this. <laughs> Won't it destroy our souls to listen to anything else? Wouldn't, wouldn't it just... 
wouldn't it just be like going up to the most beautiful painting that you have ever seen in your life and drawing a cartoon of Mickey Mouse all over it? That's what Jesus is saying. Doesn't it break your heart to imagine the, 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 the fragile, the, fragile the, the, the beautiful, beautiful picture of, of this Sermon on the Mount twisted by unscrupulous teachers using it for their agendas? That's what Jesus is warning about here. And that's why we have to be alert. Be discerning, but not cynical. And be bold. Follow Jesus boldly. Walk along that narrow path wearing the badge of Christ's love. With joy, with hope, with meaning, with purpose. And boldly proclaim the wonderful love that's brought you there. Jesus has taken up his cross so that we might take up ours and follow him. Let's do that. Let's follow him till one day we see his face, his glorious face, saying those beautiful words, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter now into my life.